because of the fear of embarrassment from a brother or a family member or my mother, I would hide it. It's funny, but I would say I was a functioning thumb sucker. I would do it every day, but I would hide it. But it was my way of coping. And, you know, one day I got to a point where the, the pain was great enough that I stopped because the embarrassment was that much. So I stopped. Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your Daily Helping. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and today's guest is fantastic and an inspiration. Jesse Harless is an entrepreneur in long-term recovery who is passionate about helping people overcome bad habits, go all in on their recovery, and live their best life. He's a passionate speaker, facilitator, life coach, and mentor for people in recovery. He graduated from River University with a master's degree in mental health counseling and is also the founder of Entrepreneurs in Recovery, a movement to empower people in recovery through facilitation, personal development, and entrepreneurship. Jesse's entrepreneurial journey started when he realized he wanted to pursue work that would align with his purpose and highest strengths. His passion to help others reach their full potential and his love for personal development was the inspiration behind Entrepreneurs in Recovery. Jesse, thank you so much for being here. I can't wait to share your inspirational journey with everybody. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dr. Richard. It's an honor to to be on your show. The honor is mine, to be sure. And, And I just read your bio and your, your journey, as everybody is about to hear, is so powerful. And a lot of people listening to this, you know, they, they might have the immediate reaction, well, this, this, is, this episode's not for me because I don't have a substance abuse problem uh, or I've never had one. But talk to us a little bit about how abuse, uh, substance abuse affects everybody. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely something now more than ever that you see that whether it's you know, yourself or whether it's a loved one or a friend, that it's, it's, it's affecting everyone. And, you know, I've been, I've been in it for the last, you know, 12 years of recovery and then, you know, four years of just, um, really being out there and, and hardcore drug addiction and, and alcoholism and, and just to see where it's coming today with, you know, the epidemic and just with, you know, kind of the public coming out and saying, wow, this is a big problem. On one hand, it's, it's, I'm very grateful that's happening. On the other hand, it's, it's like a tragedy. So it's, you know, I'm glad uh, to see what's happening, but it's definitely something that is affecting everyone and, and not just with, with kind of the opiate crisis that's happening, but even just addiction in general is, is starting to become a conversation. And, you know, I think, I think in some ways everyone uh, has uh, their own addictions. And so I think just to learn more about it can be useful to anyone. Yeah, that's very well said. And uh, certainly the opiate crisis is getting a lot of coverage in the media. But there's other addictions that, as you said, are becoming 
more well-known. Could you tell us about how many people in the world are actively in the recovery process right now? I mean, it was, it was estimated, I think it was 2012, there was about 23.5 million people in recovery um, from, from drug and alcohol addiction. But that number, I think, might have increased you know, over the last few years. But still, yeah, the number is, is low, in my opinion, comparatively to the potential number of people that are actually struggling, which it could be 100 million people. I, I don't really know. Um, but definitely it's only a small percentage of the actual majority of people who are struggling with, with addiction. And, and so it's just, it's, uh, it's, it's, again, it's one of those things that's, it's, I'm grateful there's that many people, but there's, there's, there, there's could be a hundred million more that are still struggling out there. And a lot of people, when they hear about substance abuse, they often think of people as doing this to themselves and they blame those people, but we don't really get to hear about the why, why somebody might become addicted in the first place. And I think that's one of the reasons why your story and your share are so powerful. So Jesse, take us back and let's, let's talk about your story and your journey so we can all hear, you know, how you went down your road and, and ultimately wound up having a 12 year anniversary yesterday for your recovery, which is amazing. So let's, let's talk about that journey. Yeah. And, uh, and thank you. Yeah. It's, it's, it started, you know, for me, I, the longer I've stayed in recovery, the more I look back at my life and I ask myself, what happened? When did this happen? What, what, what caused this to happen? I think it's, it's, it's not an uncommon question. And, you know, for me, it started, it started right at birth, you know, it started at, you know, I, I, right at birth, I was, I came out, I was, I was sucking my thumb and, and no big deal when you're, you know, when you're an infant or no big deal when you're two and three years old, but at eight years old, uh, I was still sucking my thumb and, um, it's still debatable whether I was still sucking my thumb at 10 and, and older, but I, we haven't, I haven't went back that, that far and, and look, but I know at eight years old, I was definitely still sucking my thumb. And, and I did it essentially because of emotional pain. You know, a lot of us, you know, use, uh, whatever addiction that we we choose because of pain, and for me it was just it was just emotional pain. It was a way to cope, and so I did it, uh, you know, every day. And and because of the fear of embarrassment from a brother or a family member or my mother, I would hide it. It's funny, but I would say I was a functioning thumb sucker. I would do it every day, but I would hide it. But it was my way of coping. And you know, one day I got to a point where the the pain was great enough that I stopped because the embarrassment was that much, so I stopped. And so that's where it started. And, you know, from there, you know, about a couple of years later, I'd say about 11 years old, I was starting to isolate more in the computer. You know, it's funny, a lot of things that happened were tied back into things that caused me pain, like, for instance, resentment. And I remember my best friend, we lived in the same apartment complex. We lived in the same uh, the same apartments and he moved across town. And when that happened, I remember this, this feeling of abandonment and that would be a theme in my life, uh, going forward. And I remember, I remember the feelings I had and to, to cope with that, what I did is I would isolate, uh, playing games on the computer and, and all of a sudden, um, high speed internet showed up. And so when high speed internet showed up, I really dove into the world of games and online games and, and it became, you know, it became like a four to six hour ha- habit a night 
at that age at 11 and 12. And then I eventually made my way into uh, the land of pornography. As soon as I went into that, that place, that's when I started to really see the effects of like addiction. And I didn't even know it was addiction. I didn't know much about it, but I just, you know, I, I really stopped interacting as much. And, and this is right around the time now it's, you know, 12, 13, 14, I'm about to get into high school. And, you know, high school is just a really tough time for me. And part of that was like, if you're watching pornography every day at 11 years old, you're literally changing the brain maps, the maps of your brain. You're like re- rewriting the pleasure centers of the brain. And that's essentially what I was doing. So I was getting pleasure from, from things that were not healthy and I couldn't find pleasure outside of that. So this is really the start of this mind that was, you know, seeking pleasure and avoiding pain. And, and so uh, I, I really, high school was tough, but I really didn't jump into drugs and alcohol in, in, in high school very much. It was, what happened was when I got into college, it's really, and, and the only reason I even went to college is because my mother being a, a single mother, she, you know, she wanted, she wanted, I was, I'm the youngest son. She really wanted one of her sons to go to college. She's like, you're going to college. And she really, she really helped me. She, she helped me get into a small college in New Hampshire. And um, because that last, that senior year, I was, I was late an absurd amount of times. I had an intervention and none of this is with drugs and alcohol. This was just, just the person I was, I was, I was, you know, I was depressed and, you know, I was isolating a lot. And so I get into this small college and, you know, I had every intention of, you know, I took 17 credits that first semester and I was, I was just ready to rock and roll. And, and I get in there and what I did is, you know, because I didn't really have a good sense of self. I felt, you know, I never felt really a part of anything. And when I got there, you know, I attracted people into my life who were getting high, who were drinking. And when people would be drinking on the weekends, you know, I would join them. And then eventually it became, you know, it was, it was Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then it was Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, it was Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And, you know, when people went back to the room to study, I was, I was wanting to keep it going, keep the party going. And that was kind of the telltale signs, like maybe there's something here, you know, like a signpost. And for me, college that first semester, there was tons of signposts. And, you know, for instance, that first semester, I got arrested by a state trooper for, for open container. I was, I failed all of my classes. I failed the class. That's an intro to college class. You literally show up, you sit on the grass. It's just pass or fail. You just show up. I failed that class. And, and then, you know, I got caught for plagiarism. So I hit all these jackpots that first semester. And, you know, there, there was a lot of signposts and, and, and I, and they let me back for some reason the second semester, but I, you know, I couldn't pull my grades up and I try to change my habits. I try to change, you know, I'm, I'm not going to drink as much. I'm not going to, you know, do this, but it continued happening. So that's where it was kind of the, 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 the drugs and alcohol. And, and, and it was just really, it was just alcohol and, and weed at the time, marijuana. And when I got out of college, I came back home. Uh, my mother was living on the seacoast, came back to live with her. And I came home one night from work and I found out that my father had passed away. Now, this man, he left, he left the home at three. Uh, he was in Vietnam. He got addicted. He was one of the 20% that I get addicted. And, and, and he, you know, he tried to stay sober and had a really hard time, but he, he did stay sober when he met my mom. And then he fell back into his addiction, which was alcohol and cocaine. And, 
you know, at three years old, he left the house. He was in a car accident, uh, put him in a coma for, for about 22 days. And from age three to age 20, I talked to him a total of about three times. And I was only on the phone. So this is a man I didn't have connection with. But the interesting part is that when I came home and I found out that he had passed away, I had left that night and, and went and, and met a friend. And we, uh, for the first time ever, I had used uh, cocaine. And you know, the sad part is when I used that substance, it was the best I had ever felt in my entire life. And that and that's a problem, you know, that, you know, feelings should be maybe from love or acceptance or whatever. I, I felt it when I did cocaine for the first time. And, and I, and once that happened, I really ran with this thing. I ran with it hard. So, you know, I'm here, I'm, I'm, I'm 20 years old and I'm just getting in the throes of addiction. And, you know, I jumped into cocaine and heroin and at one point I was shooting heroin and it just got really bad. And so circumstances happened, you know, I kind of, I came back to, drinking alcohol and, and, and finding ways. In other words, like what happened is the person I was running with got arrested. And so I came back home and I didn't have my source of connect to, to use cocaine and use heroin. And so what I started to do is I started to replace with alcohol. I started to drink lots of alcohol. And this was, you know, I was at, at home living with my mom. I was drinking every night and I found a way being someone who, you know, went to school, you know, before I failed out, I went to school for computer science and you know, I was, I was pretty savvy with the computer. I found a way to order prescription pills online and get them delivered to me. And this was going to be the start of the next downfall, clearly. And I had found a way to order pills and I would pick them up. And, you know, I was consuming hundreds of pills at one point, you know, hydrocodone, oxycotton, and I didn't have to go on the street to get them. They were coming right to me. And I say this, the reason I share this, and, and I didn't share this for a long time because of fear. I share this because if there's anyone out there who is thinking about doing that and thinking it's a safe route. Well, let me tell you, it's not. And, and I'll get into that. I, you know, I was, I was getting these pills and, and uh, I was drinking alcohol. And you know, basically what I did is I replaced one addiction for the other. You know, I, I was telling myself, I'm not doing cocaine. I'm not doing heroin. These, these, this, this Oxycontin, it's not as bad as heroin. And and it's okay, right? And I'm drinking alcohol. Everyone drinks alcohol. So I, from there, I, I was, uh, this went on for months, months and months. And at one point I was, I was at Walmart and I got a phone call and it was my normal phone call. It was the phone call that my pills are ready to be picked up. And on the phone, the person on the phone said, Hey, I just want to let you know, they didn't come. They didn't come here they, they, they went to the post office. And as soon as I heard that, I had this intuitive feeling that something was wrong. But instead of listening to my gut and trusting my intuition, which is what I do now more than ever, I said, you know what? I'm going to get these things. I need these. I need these pills. So I went to the post office. I walk in, they handed me my package. I walk out, boom, I'm arrested. I'm brought back into the post office. I'm questioned. It was crazy. And, and they, had a, they, they essentially had a warrant to search my place. I lived with my mother. So the, this is kind of a funnier part of the story. I, I lived with my mother and you know, I told him, I said, my mom's a single mother. You know, my father was an alcoholic. You know, she, she's just had this really rough time with this. Can we not bring three you know, Yukons to my house and make this crazy? Can we bring like one vehicle? And, and I was negotiating with these, these officers and agents and 
you know, so they end up coming to my house. And when I walked in, I told my mom that they were just looking to buy the snowboard in my room and she bought it. And so they went into my room, they seized my computer, they seized everything they could. And, and so we walk outside and they're like, they're, they're actually leaving. And I'm like, well, what's going to happen to me? And they're, and they say, well, keep in touch. And I'm like, well, well, you don't understand. I'm moving to Florida in two weeks because see, my plan was uh, taking all those pills, drinking all the alcohol. I'd hit some bottoms, really hard bottoms. And I knew I was going to die. Like I knew it. And I said, I got to escape where I'm at here in New Hampshire. I got to just get out of here. And the plan was to move to Florida. Not a great plan, you know, not a great place to go as an active uh, person in addiction. But, you know, I had basically one side of the brain, my own brain negotiating with the other side of the brain. I wasn't talking to other people. So I wasn't asking, you know, I wasn't getting any great direction. I was, I was only doing business with myself. And so they let me go. And, you know, I went down to Florida. I get down there. I called them on the way down and, you know, and, and I, and I told myself, you know, I'm going to get to Florida. I'm going to go back to school. I'm going to turn my life around. I'm going to make this happen. You know, I'm 21 years old. I'm going to make this happen. And, you know, I get down there. I didn't even get to Orlando. I was moving to Orlando. I didn't even get down to Orlando. I was already getting high. I didn't even get to my residency. I've never even been to Florida and I was already getting high. So it was kind of, it was showing, it was, it was, it was showing the future of what was going to happen. And I can tell you, I'm so grateful for those 10 months in Florida. I lasted 10 months. It was my last 10 months of my, of my, uh, my active addiction. And I'm so grateful for it because when I get down there, I said the same thing to myself. As long as I stay away from cocaine, as long as I stay away from heroin, I'm going to be fine. As long as I'm just doing these pills and drinking. And that lasted for about four months in Florida until someone offered me, you know, offered me the drug cocaine. And I, and, you know, I, I, I said, no, I don't do that. You know, it's not what I do. I had no solution. I had no way of, of, of saying no, really. So I went back into the bar, I ended up having four shots. I went back to her and I said, yeah, let's go and do business. And I, and I picked back up. And, and for the next six months, it was a living hell. And what I do when, I, when I'm in active addiction, I, I, I let go of everything. Like I gave my social security number away in Florida. I pawned all my stuff in Florida. The only thing I didn't pawn in Florida was essentially my car, and it's in my computer monitor because, you know, no one wants a huge, gigantic CRT monitor that weighs a thousand pounds. So I, the only thing I didn't pawn was the stuff that, you know, was ridiculous to pawn. Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you, and I can't wait to see where you'll go. You know, I got to, I got to a place in Florida where it got really dark and I was, and, and the thing about me is, is I was a functioning, a so-called functioning, you know, alcoholic or functioning 
you know, user, I, I would, I, I had, I held two jobs in Florida while all this was happening. See, when I got, when I ended up getting to the place where I'm about to tell you, uh, when I got to the place where I was arrested before that, I was, I was, people did not see it coming because I was, I was hiding it all and I was managing it. I was managing it. And I used to pride myself in that, that I can handle this. And this is, this is my life. This is what I do. You know, I was a functioning alcoholic and I, so I got to the point where I, that was no longer happening. You know, there was just, you know, I would, I would use and blood would gush and it would just, it got to be really nasty. And I, and I hit that place where I had to come back to New Hampshire again, once again, common theme, I knew I was going to die. And so I ended up driving myself back to New Hampshire within about five to seven days back from New Hampshire. I got a phone call and it was from my roommate in Florida. And he said, Hey, there's agents here. They're looking for you. You know, they, you know, I'm scared. I don't know what's going to happen. I said, I dude, I don't know why they're there. I'm not sure what's going on. And I hung up the phone and then I got a second phone call that came in and, uh, I answered it. And it was, it was one of those agents that had arrested me 10 months prior. And they said, Hey, we're in Florida. We're here. We have a warrant for your arrest. Where are you? And, you know, I told him I had gone back to New Hampshire and, and, and I'm so grateful because if they would have found me in Florida, even 10 days before that, with what I was doing, they would have found me with lots of substances. And then I would have probably done time in Florida and then done time in New Hampshire, but I had come back, something had got me back. And so a few days later, December 22nd, 2005, I was arraigned in Concord federal court and my life would change. And, um, and I say that because you know, I've been asked like, Hey, so you were arrested. Does everyone need to be arrested and, and go through what you went through to, to get this thing, to be, to get in a place where they're, they're willing to change. And the answer is no. The answer is no. I mean, if you're in enough emotional pain or you're at that place in your life where you just know that the gig is up, like this is working, there's, there's a way out for me. It happened to be with facing federal felonies and, the prescription for me from the judge was, it wasn't rehab. It was, you're going to work full time. Cause I had somehow got my job back. And the few days I came back, I'd got my job back. The prescription was, I'm going to work full time and you're going to go to 12 step groups and you're going to attend a drug and alcohol counselor session. And, um, you know, once a week and that's your prescription. And that's what I did. So I had to make a decision though. I had to make a decision inside whether I was really going to do this. And so I decided you know, and it, what really helps is when I get a re- when I'm when I'm walking into that courtroom December 22nd, and I walk in, I'm I'm shackled out my hands, I'm shackled on my ankles. I look to the right of me, and I see my mother, I see my brother, I see his wife, and they're bawling their eyes out. That makes this real. You know, I thought because I was a functioning alcoholic and and someone in addiction that I wasn't affecting anyone, and the reality is I was affecting everyone. And so that really hit home that day in the court when they were bawling their eyes out. And I had said, how did my life come to this? And I was facing seven years in federal prison for what they had found. And, you know, I had to make a decision whether I was going to go all in and do this or whether I was just going to kind of go back to what I was doing and face some serious time. And so I decided that I was going to go all in, whatever that meant. I didn't even know what it really meant, but I said, I'm going to go all in. I'm going to do the next right thing every single day. And so what I did is you know, along with going to 12 step groups and, and then seeing a drug and alcohol counselor that was court appointed, I started to journal every single day. I've been journaling for the last 12 years. I have stacks of journals. I still journal today. So I journal every day. I, w- I started to 
read every day. I started to do affirmations every day. So I started to do these habits that I never did before. I started to use a calendar. So I literally would write down my schedule. One, because I had to be you know, checking in for probation. I had to do you know, urine analysis and all this stuff. So I had this calendar. And so I started to develop this habit of a calendar system. And I had you know, all these habits that I started doing. I even started praying. like All these things I never did before, I started doing every day. And what happened was I kept that momentum going and I would go in and see my lawyer and he'd be like, right, lawyer, and he would say, hey, Jess, you know, I had a court-appointed lawyer. I couldn't afford an actual lawyer. So I would go in and he would say, hey, Jess, we got it down to, you know, four years. And I'd be like, John, like, I can't, I can't do four years. And then I would go in and he'd be like, Jess, we got it down to 11 months. You have to take this. And I would say, John, I, I can't, you know, I can't, I, I just, and so I said, let me meet the prosecutor. And he's like, you don't want to meet the prosecutor. If you meet the prosecutor, he's going to put you away. You know, you're going to go to trial. They're going to nail you. And I said, let me meet the prosecutor. Because at that point I had, I had, I don't even know how many months, eight months of sobriety. I had been doing the next right thing every day. I had been, you know, just, just really like doing, going on in my recovery. And I had the confidence to meet him. Well, it was, I should have listened to my lawyer because, uh, (laughs) meeting, uh, meeting the prosecutor was probably not the best idea. Uh, he, the lawyer was right. I, I left there feeling terrible, but you know, I trusted my intuition to meet him. And a few, about a week or two later, I came in and met my lawyer and he said, Jess, you're not going to do any time. You're going to take your federal felonies. You're going to get probation. You're not going to do any time. And that right there was, was another, it was like a win. And it was like a, a place in me that I said, oh my God. You know, it's interesting. You've talked a couple times about signposts and intuition and not listening to your intuition at the post office resulted in you getting caught by those agents. And despite being given some pretty solid legal advice, you trusted your gut and it ended up in going from an 11 months sentence in a federal prison to getting probation. Was that the first real affirming thing for you to, to know that you were on the right path, the true path you were supposed to be on? A hundred percent, a hundred percent, Dr. Richard. I, you know, when that happened, I, I knew that there was a, it was almost like I had a sense of purpose. I didn't know what the purpose was, but I knew there was a purpose for my life that all of the odds were stacked against me and that it should have happened. I mean, I literally sat that day December 22nd in a cell before I went into the courtroom. And there was a guy in a yellow in an orange jumpsuit across from me. We sat together for like four hours and didn't talk for most of that time. And at one point I finally got the courage to say, Hey man, what are you in for? And he said to me, I'm in because of possession of Oxycontin. And he and I said, well, how many? And he said, uh, you know, a few. And they had caught me with more than a few. Let me just tell you, it was more than a few. It was more than a couple dozen. And I, and, and, and just the fact that the way the things turned out the way they did, I felt a sense of purpose for my life. So yeah, definitely. So let's talk about how that purpose propelled you forward into ultimately what you're doing now. So now you've been sober, you've been working, you've been doing everything you're supposed to be doing. What happened next? Yeah. So you know, I found out I wasn't going to a prison. So I, I essentially just was like, the sky's the limit. So I got back, I got into school. Um, you know, I kept my recovery number one. That was key. Still to this day, you know, I, yesterday I celebrated 12 years 
of long-term recovery. And, and really the most consistent thing I can tell you is I always put recovery number one. Nothing comes before that. Because if I have that, I have everything and I can build a life around it. So, you know, just putting my recovery first, I jumped back into school, you know, because I never finished. I said, I'm going to go back to school. And plus I got these felonies. So I'm like, I got to make something of my life. So I went back to school. I ended up getting my bachelor's degree in psychology. And I got to a point where I had purchased my first home in recovery. I'm, I'm six years in recovery. I purchased my first home. You know, I got my bachelor's. I'm, I'm, life is great, right? And so the problem was, is I was still in that same job that I had even before I got arrested. So I never had to deal with the fact that I had felonies. And I always had this fear of facing those felonies. And so essentially I had to face that fear at one point, you know, it's just, you know, money, money was an issue. I had, I had to get out there. And so I ended up applying to a fortune 15 company and on the application, it says, you know, wherever you're, where you ever arrested, I put on there, of course, my felonies and, and I put the details and I had my first phone interview and they asked me and they said, Oh, well, you know, good job with this and good job with that. Let's talk about your arrest. Of course, they just wanted to really focus on, Hey, let's talk about what happened. And I told them everything. I told them probably too much. I mean, I told them what had happened, the problem with Oxycontin, coming into recovery, being six years so clean and sober, like all these different things. And, and then that would be the end of the conversation. And really what I was doing is I didn't want to not tell them something and have it come back to bite me. And the second, I had a second phone interview, same thing. Hey, we're great job. And, 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 and we loved your resume and stuff, but we want to talk about your arrest. <laughs> so once again, I tell them everything and I got the job. You know, all that it was, it was once again, it was like life, the world, everything was like, you can't, you're, you're a federal fund. You can't get a job. You can't do this. You can't do that. And I, and I proved it wrong. I got the job. And so that's, you know, anyone who's out there, who's like, you know, I got these charges, my life's over. There's nothing I can do. What's the point of staying, you know, in recovery? Well, guess what? There is a point to your recovery. There is a point to your life because I was able to get this job. And when I got it, I knew once again, I had that same feeling of purpose. I got into that job and I was, and, and, I, and I just jumped headfirst. I was very successful. I won awards. And eventually I got to a place where I started to uh, mix personal development with my recovery. Um, and I was kind of doing that all along, but I started to really mix it together. And, and one of the things I started doing was uh, cold showers, which is crazy. So I started doing cold showers I started doing a uh, you know, more, strong morning routine, all these different things. Jesse, what was the inspiration to start doing cold showers? So yeah, so a friend of mine, it was December of uh, 2014, uh, sorry, 2015. A friend of mine came into my house and he goes, out of nowhere, he's like, hey, let's do a 30-day challenge of cold showers. And I'm like, no, why would I do that? It's December in New Hampshire. It's freezing. <laughs> I love my warm showers. I'm not doing that. And my roommate at the time immediately went upstairs, turned the shower cold and jumped in the cold shower. And I was like, what? I mean, it was like five o'clock and I'm like, what is going on right now? So I said, you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. So I jumped in this, I went, you know, I turned the shower, I turned the dial all the way cold, which is a bad idea. You don't want to do that in your first cold shower unless you live in like, you know, Texas, but here in New Hampshire, you don't want to turn all the way cold. I turn all the way cold. I jump in, I, I lose my breath for at least 30 seconds but I stay in for five minutes. I come out and all of a sudden I have like this euphoric, like feeling and 
you know, I had been someone who I didn't get in this too much, but I had someone who'd always struggled with social anxiety, anxiety, big time. And I came out of that shower and for the next two to three hours. I, I felt, I didn't feel any anxiety. I felt energy like I've never felt. And so I, you know, it just stuck with me. says, you know, what? I'm going to give this thing 30 days and, and, you know, 30 days turned into two years. And I actually just on the 17th of this month, I just reached two years of taking cold showers, straight cold every day for two years. Wow. And that cold shower challenge was the inspiration for a book you've written. Tell us about that. Yeah. So a lot of people were asking me uh, this last year, like, why do you take cold showers? Like, why do you take them cold? 